The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, folks. I am so glad that you could join us. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Gamble, and he's got such an amazing background. You have to check out his bio. We have that listed on our guest directory page. But he is, um, he's got dual degrees in both nuclear science or engineering and mechanical engineering. He used to work at the Los Alamos National Laboratory. Um, he has had a number of different positions and, and interests within the renewable energy energy world, but currently he is now one of the founding partners of a California investment banking and corporate advisory firm that's working with companies that need some financing. They're middle grade companies, somewhere between the five million to fifty million dollar companies. They're working on the energy that we need for the future. It's no secret that the United States needs clean and cheap energy. And Dr. Gamble is going to be talking to us today about some various technologies that might give us a tremendous amount of hope to achieve those goals. You know, recently in the news, I live actually very near the Solyndra headquarters, and that debacle, that fiasco, um, has really, I'm afraid, had a had a very negative effect on the public's interest in investing tax dollars in alternative energy technology, and that's a pity. Um, and so we're going to talk today about maybe some of the ways that we can continue investing in this vital resource, alternative energy, but maybe shore up the criteria by which our tax dollars are devoted to those types of technologies. And we've got the subject matter expert to help us look into these issues. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Dr. Gamble. So glad to have you on. Thank you very much, Jill. I'm delighted to be with you today. I'm a huge fan of Go Green Radio. Well, thank you. And I have to say to our listeners, I'm a huge fan of Dr. Gamble for a number of reasons, not just his <laughs> his background, but I told him before we started the show, I'm bleary-eyed this morning because I stayed up uh, half the night reading his new book, Zeroscape, which we're going to be talking about in a little bit. But it's a great action-packed thriller that uh, I highly recommend. But we'll get to that in just a moment. Dr. Gamble, let's start by talking about the Solyndra bankruptcy fiasco. As an alternative energy researcher, and investment banking analyst. Can you tell us what went wrong with that deal? Was it flawed from the start, or did something change with the company's business model after public funds were guaranteed? Well, Jill, there were definitely changes in the landscape, I would say, surrounding Solyndra and, in fact, surrounding surrounding all of the thin film technology-based solar companies within Mm -hmm. the last year. The... um, solar-grade material that's used, the silicon, that is the competitor for the thin film or the plastic material that was used by Solyndra and so many others, the bottom fell out of the, the, 
the uh, price fell out of the market in mm-hmm. that particular area, and it left Solyndra exposed. They were producing panels that were oh, between 4 and $6 a watt to produce, and once the bottom fell out of the market for the cost of solar-grade silicon, well, other companies came forward and they said, well, for a dollar a watt, we can produce the same solar panels. So mm-hmm. that was really, that was at the, the crux of the Solyndra debacle, was the fact that their materials cost became much higher than those of competitors using photovoltaic-grade silicon. And that wasn't foreseeable at the time that the the uh, the government grants and and what have you were promised to Solyndra? No, it wasn't. As a matter of fact, it was just in the last couple of years that the breakthroughs, the Chinese made some critical breakthroughs in the uh, uh, fabrication technology for photovoltaic-grade silicon. They made it much easier. In fact, one of the things that was was found is that the efficiency of of a, a non non crystalline form of silicon could be if could be great enough or the efficiency was good enough to use for photovoltaic solar collectors previously crystalline silicon which is very expensive and a little bit difficult to fabricate was thought to be the most useful and in fact it is the most efficient means for turning sunlight into electricity but the non crystalline silicon that was developed by the Chinese over the last couple of years is plenty good for that application. I see. I see. What impact do you think the Solyndra case will have on the future investments or potential investments of tax dollars for alternative energy? I mean, clearly there's political fallout. Um, do you feel like there will be public pushback? I mean, what what are the ramifications of this case on other companies' opportunities to get this kind of government funding? Well, Jill, there will, will certainly be an overhang effect from the not only the, the uh, difficulty or the bankruptcy of Solyndra, but also Beacon Power that was yeah, agreeing. Yeah, talk to us about that, you know, Beacon Power. That hasn't gotten as quite as much play in the news as Solyndra. I guess it's just so easy to, you know, snarl the world, word Solyndra when you want to criticize the, the administration and, and their policies. But te- tell us about Beacon as well. Yeah, it, I guess that one could say that Solyndra is sort of the poster child. Yes. But uh, Beacon Power is the little brother or the little sister of the poster child, <laughs> Solyndra, in this case. And it is that Beacon Power was an energy storage concern. I believe they were um, headquartered in Waltham, Mass., if I'm not mistaken. But they were up in New England. And with one of the problems associated with uh, solar energy is that while it's, you know, there's so many good things about it that, that I almost hate to bring up this niggling point that it's extremely diffuse, mm-hmm. meaning that it takes a large area of solar collection in order to collect a, a great deal of energy or a meaningful amount of energy for industrial purposes. You know, for your home use, having a couple of solar collectors on the top of your house, it's amazing what a great impact that can, or what a negative impact that can have on your electric bill. Right. But if you're going to, to use this for um, industrial purposes, it, it takes a lot of collection area in order to get enough electricity to power industry. And also, everybody realizes that the sun doesn't shine all day long. And right. so you need a means to collect that energy, or once you do develop the means to collect the energy while the sun is shining or while there are 
various radiations that are collected by the more modern solar panels, you need a way to store that and to be able to use that in the hours when you don't have the solar radiations available to you. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what Beacon Power was focused on. Was um, It was a flywheel storage technology scenario, which is not one of my favorites and a little bit old tech. But at any rate, they were at least they were trying. You know, right. batteries also represent maybe the most conspicuous means of energy storage, even though we all we think of them as batteries. Well, everybody knows what a battery is, and usually we don't go the extra step or, or go down one level lower and say, well, this represents energy storage. But the energy storage is something that we desperately need to improve in the world. And for use of solar power or to make it pervasive or to give it industrial impact, that, that's something we're going to have to improve going forward. Right. And actually, we've covered that a little bit, you know, on Go Green Radio with a variety of guests and talking about how critical it will be in order to maximize not just solar, but also wind power um, through the use of, of maybe some utility size or, you know, it could be smaller, but uh, some some pretty significant energy storage for that same reason that, you know, the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow. And oftentimes, you know, <laughs> when the wind blows, Texas. it's at night. And, you know, that's that's not necessarily, you know, when we're using all that power. And so if we could store it for peak hours, that would be great. So what do you think the upshot of of Beacon and Solyndra and, you know, their difficulties after getting public tax dollars, what do you think the upshot will be for future companies getting that same chance at financing? Well, Jill, putting my investment banking hat on, I I have to tell you truthfully that it seems as though the public has a short memory, mm-hmm. and and sometimes that's a very good thing, because I believe that these. While I am a free market thinker, and of course, it would be difficult to to swim in these waters if if I were not. Mm-hmm. But I'm very much a free market thinker. But I realize that subsidy certainly works when it, when you talk about bringing forward something that isn't um, financially viable or that isn't. Um, embraced by the public or is is not so much on the on every man's radar shall we say you know mm-hmm. every every person driving to work every day you're you're probably not thinking about how you can put together the cash to install solar collection panels on your roof mm-hmm. so and and in fact until the recognition on on the part of the populace in America or around the world comes to the point where people are trying to figure out how can i save enough or what can i do what can my congressman do to put forward a bill or some sort of legislation that might even offer an incentive for me to be able to use solar power as an individual household until we begin to take the concern, the matter, that strongly, I don't think we're going to have the widespread adoption that we need going forward into um, further into the 21st century. But I think that the government is going to have to get back in there. They're going to have to step up and find other players and find other opportunities in green energy in order to um, bring the industry forward. And even if the populace, if there is some backlash on the part of the populace, and even if you know the Occupy movement say, well, no, we could use that money more than some other little fledgling company or someone promising pie in the sky, I think the government's going to have to be more rigorous in the vetting of the companies. I must say that Secretary Energy... Energy Secretary Chu, pardon me, mm-hmm. was was somewhat unimpressive in his testimony uh, in the fall or in the late fall 
before Congress because he failed to point out, while he did point out all the reasons why the current administration, why their hands were clean in the matter, or while the matter, matter was handled in an arm's-length transaction, which is generally the standard that you seek whenever you're doing business with someone who might be perceived as a close ally or someone who might be perceived as able to receive special treatment. Mm-hmm. What he failed to mention was that the, the dropping cost of, of the materials for solar collectors and the fabrication of solar panels represents a tremendous boon for the United States and the world in terms of saving the environment and in terms of being able to implement on a broad scale green technologies. I agree with you because I felt like his testimony was more politically apologetic. I think that's his it, job, Jill. Yeah, and, and I think that it was more politically apologetic saying that, you know, the administration was was clean as a whistle instead of using that that media time, that face time to educate the public on how critical it is to have, you know, this this technology on board, like you said, to have uh, opportunities to subsidize distributed generation by encouraging individual use of these technologies, which of course could help to bring the price down if demand went up. Um, I felt like that was a tremendous wasted opportunity to further the understanding of the American populace of why this is so critical and why the government must stay involved in helping to bring this technology um to the market. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but we have so much more with Dr. Gamble right after this. So folks, don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We're in segment two with Dr. Michael Gamble. And we're talking about alternative energy. And we were talking in the last segment about what's happened with Solyndra and the political fallout from that. But, you know, sometimes I feel like it's not fair to my listeners that you don't get to listen in to the chit-chat that I have with my guests during the commercial breaks because we have some awesome conversations. And, And Dr. Gamble and I were talking about the good news that, Secretary Chu and the Obama administration could be delivering out of the Solyndra situation. And Dr. Gamble, I'd love for you to share that insight and that advice that you may have for the administration and Secretary Chu with our listeners. Well, thank you very much for that, Jill. I enjoyed the uh, break chat we had also. Mm -hmm. And the point that I I was trying to make to you is that one nice thing, and, and I don't mean to continue to hammer the energy secretary, but how wonderful it would have been if he had spent a little bit more time explaining that the the dropping cost of photovoltaic-grade silicon is the rising tide that will float all of the boats for for photovoltaic use going forward in the future. And he also could have mentioned, or if the administration had been on their toes, perhaps they could have could have elaborated a plan or at least given a sketch of how they planned, given this new landscape, how they plan to identify better targets in the future or more targets for subsidy. And I would have thought, since the government is very much a fan, and I, in the, my dealings with the government, I have never had a problem with their competitive bid scenarios. Mm-hmm. And I would have been delighted to hear them come forward and say that they're going to try to identify or they're going to uh, solicit companies that are private or even those who have, um, have um, capital equity from the, the public markets, and they're going to ask them to come forward and bid for more government subsidy or government loan guarantees going forward in this critical technology. Well, and I mean, isn't it government subsidies that allowed the Chinese to come forward with this great breakthrough in the material that ended up sinking Solyndra in terms of (laughs) now we've got a cheaper substitute raw material? I mean, you know, government subsidies can work. (laughs) We may be heading into treacherous political waters (laughs) because one could conclude that anything that succeeds quite well in China pretty much has the government on top of it or honchoing it. But mm-hmm. I would like to point to a freer economy, more, let's call them more trans, the more transparent economies of Japan and Germany and Italy. Mm-hmm. In turn, each one of those over the last 20 years offered, and let us not forget the, the highly transparent economy and nation, the United States of America. Right. These four nations offered significant subsidies over the last 20 or 30 years, and in turn, when each country offered significant subsidy, they became the world leader in photovoltaic energy generation. Mm-hmm. And as the subsidy subsided, well, their leadership positions subsided. And most recently, that has happened with Italy. Over the last couple of years in their financial squeeze, they've cut back on their subsidy for photovoltaic uses or for solar energy deployment, 
and now their world leadership position or the top-tier leadership position is diminishing. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Well, and I spend a lot of time in China. I've done some work with the China Entrepreneurs Club. And, oh, great. And I, yeah, I can tell you that, you know, I mean, they are myopically hyper-focused on doing what is best for their country in every aspect. Yes, um, they are. Whether it's acquiring um, forms of energy from around the world or, you know, developing clean energy because, I mean, they, they have no interest in destroying their own environment. And so that that incredible laser focus um, on doing what is best for their country's economy and their populace um, is is only intensifying as they begin to compete on the world stage in a number of different sectors. I want to get back to um, one of the the things that I'm curious to know in terms of what you're seeing on the landscape. You know, one of the biggest hurdles for alternative energy technologies is – Achieving market pricing that makes the energy not only environmentally friendly, but also affordable. And I'm wondering what emerging technologies you think might have a chance to displace cheap, dirty energy sources like coal from a price perspective. What's on the horizon there? Well, if I can couple your previous comment in with this response, I would point out that China is going forward. I think they have about 36 nuclear reactors under construction or they plan to, 36 that they plan to bring online within the next decade. And mm-hmm. many of these reactors are the newer, safer, the so-called fourth-generation conventional nuclear, and I believe we'll talk about nuclear power a little bit later in the, the show, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But this uh, fourth generation is a cleaner and safer alternative to the earlier forms of conventional nuclear power generation. And there, many of the reactors that they're deploying are the Westinghouse AP-1000 types, yes. which mm-hmm. is the one, if, if you've uh, kept up with the, the news in the U.S. recently, the New York Times reported on the fact that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and has gotten approval or given approval to uh, Southern Company, I believe it is, to put a couple of these or bring a couple of these reactors online. And there's also a South Carolina utility that has the approval to bring a couple of these plants forward. So we will have four of the Westinghouse AP-1000 plants in progress in the U.S., where the Chinese will have 36. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty impressive on the part of the Chinese, because this is a safer, um, further fourth-generation plant. And the fact is, I haven't been over there, you know, often. When you drive, you know, on the the freeways there, uh, you don't have to go very far outside of Shanghai, Hangzhou, Suzhou to see these nuclear plants. I mean, they, they are right out there. And in fact, when you ask Chinese people about them, like there's a nuclear plant and you live near it, what do you think about that? They will say, well, it's a good thing. It's, you know, carbon free. It's cleaner air. And they think it's a wonderful thing. They don't have the same kind of political opposition to zoning, siting, and building plants that we do in the U.S. It's just a, you know, it's a function of democracy that kind of slows that progress a bit. But, um, Still, I wouldn't trade our democracy for anything in the world, but, uh, but you know, we do have obstacles to to building those plants that they just simply don't have. We do, and and I'm not sure, Jill, but I, I believe that the exclusion zone, it's called, around our nuclear generating facilities in the U.S., is a 25-mile radius. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that that is uh, necessarily a bad thing, because if you remember... Uh, in the late 70s in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the so-called mm-hmm. Three Mile Island incident, 
if yeah. an individual, even though that was uh, the most significant release of radiation in America's nuclear gen- or nuclear electricity generation history, if someone had stood at the fence at the exclusion zone for the two weeks surrounding that event or immediately after that event for two weeks, the most radiation exposure that that person would re- have received would have been the equivalent of about two dental x-rays. <laughs> now, just consider that. The worst yeah. release of radiation in, in commercial reactor history in the U.S., and because of the safety systems we have in place and because of the exclusion zone, in part, two dental x-rays was the most radiation anybody would sustain. Mm-hmm. That's not too bad. It's not too bad. But back to some technologies that um, that you find promising. What look at your crystal ball? Tell us what's coming. Oh, there's no doubt that that nuclear fusion is going to. That's really that's the renewable, uh, the the holy grail, if I could say, the coup de grace. I mean, this this is the most desirable and the finest, cleanest 21st energy, 21st century energy source that is imaginable. And now, whether we're able to achieve this nuclear fusion by so-called magnetic confinement or my favorite, and of course the thing that stimulated my thinking and that, that was the uh, initial seed of, of inspiration for my book, Zeroscape, which mm-hmm. deals with a powerful gamma-ray laser that I posit is, is perfected by an enemy, these large laser systems that are capable of fusing atoms together and having energy large amounts of energy liberated from the fusion while having water and helium as a byproduct, this is without a doubt the most desirable and the finest energy source that we could look to for the future. Give us some idea of the scale. Like, for instance, you know, what would it take to power a city or, you know, I mean, what's Uh, uh, the difference? You know, what's the number is a gigawatt. (laughs) Oh, wow. That, and that's the size of all of these plants. Usually you quote plant parameters in terms of megawatts because yeah. a, a moderate-sized plant might be 500 megawatts. Mm-hmm. That's 500 megawatts of electricity or, or 500 million watts of electricity. Mm-hmm. Now, that's half of a gigawatt. So a large nuclear power plant or a large power plant of any kind would produce 1,000 megawatts, which is one gigawatt, and mm-hmm. that's what it takes to run an entire metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. So these plants, now when you look at the, at the costs associated with them, and we say, well, the cost of the grid, you say, the cost of, how much does it cost to run your hair dryer at 6 a.m. in L.A. versus how much it costs to, to run your dryer at 2 a.m. in, in uh, New York City? Well, these kinds of things, now you talk about the cost of energy delivered by the grid or using the grid to your home. And, of course, the, you know, the factors that there are multiples that go along all the way. And in California, it is so complex, the formula for how much it costs to run your hair dryer at 7 a.m. versus how much it would have cost to run it at, at 2 a.m. Uh, it, it's a very complex formula. Mm-hmm. But as a general rule, we're, we're looking for, in photovoltaic land, we're looking for sources that cost a dollar a watt for the energy produced and that can be delivered to a grid or less. There are those, like NanoSolar claims that for 60 cents a watt, you know, they can produce energy or electricity and they can send it to the grid. But there are really questions. It's very difficult. And as a venture capitalist, 
part of the diligence function in the bank is to determine what do these, what do these numbers really mean? Because one company, Solyndra, uh, as a matter of fact, they included certain mounting hardware and certain power conditioning hardware with their products that others didn't include. So mm-hmm. to say, well, Solyndra was five bucks a watt, and so they're way out of competition with anybody around a dollar. That it's not an apples to apples comparison, unfortunately, and and it did go against it cut a, the wrong way across Solyndra's grain. But the cost of these things, nuclear power is not the cheapest, even the conventional nuclear power is not the cheapest means for generating electricity, but it is the cleanest and the safest and the most environmentally friendly, next to hydroelectric, which essentially um, releases no carbon greenhouse gases or methane or these kinds of things into the environment, CO2. Mm -hmm. But it turns out from a risk assessment perspective, Hydroelectric could be is a very risky way to generate electricity. Well, sure. If a dam breaks, millions of people could die. Yeah, yeah. Precisely. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but we've got so much more to talk about. So, folks, don't go away. We've got more with Dr. Michael Gamble right after this. News, opinion, Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Two views. Different topics. Questions. Answers. News. And advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We are joined by Dr. Michael Gamble. He's the author of a brand new book. It's a it's a fiction book, but it's 
just full of science and, and some of the things that we're talking about today. Um, it's a lot of fun. I told him earlier in the show that I am bleary-eyed, staying up most of the night trying to finish it. I'm, I'm not quite there, but I'm getting close. Um, <laughs> and it is it is fantastic. We're going to talk about the book in just a little bit. But uh, really quickly, Dr. Gamble, give us the website where people can learn more about Xeroscape. The website for Xeroscape is www.xeroscape.com. That's Z-E-R-O-S-C-A-P-E hyphen the book, T-H-E-B-O-O-K dot com. It turns well, out I... that Zeroscape is a raging reggae heavy metal band in Canada. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> or, Maybe they can come up with a song that goes yeah, along well, with Yeah, well, Zeroscape, also X-E-R-I, which is what we have, and the story entails a, a professor, a young professor from MIT, he sort of gets on the wrong side of the politics there, which, mm-hmm. from my experience, is not very difficult to do. <laughs> <laughs> and he finds himself out here in the sunny southwest trying to recover his life and trying to restart his career. And from lush Boston, he, he arrives in Los Alamos and Santa Fe and Albuquerque and these places, and he sees the, the scrub growing everywhere in these contorted pinyon pines, and he learns the word Xeriscape. You know, which is basically the natural lay of the land and the natural um, flora for the environment. And he thinks, God, this is, this is more like Xeroscape for me. <laughs> and it's not very long before his life comes to mimic the landscape. Well, and, and it's like, I was a big fan of 24 when it was still on. I love oh, that show. I used to watch that, yes. Yeah. yeah, and and th- this book reminds me of that fast-paced, you know, action-packed thriller kind of thing. And I was telling my son, uh, you know, he was really into 24 with me. I said, Zeroscape reminds me a lot of that because he was wondering why I was up so late with my nose in a book. And it's <laughs> it's a great read. <laughs> uh, thank, I'm so glad you're enjoying it. Well, I sure am. And I hope that our listeners will check it out as well. You can also find it at Amazon.com or, you know, other major uh, book retailers. But I definitely would encourage you to check out Zeroscape. You know, my publisher, and I guess in order to demonstrate that they're not total Grinches over there, for the holidays, <laughs> they introduced Xeroscape as an ebook. So it's available through, you know, so many outlets, and you can read it on a Droid phone or an iPad or whatever, but it's available now as an electronic book through Amazon. Oh, cool. Very cool. Well, I know for all of our Kindle and Kindle Fire users that are out there listening, they'll be thrilled to hear that. Um, that's awesome. Congratulations on that, by the way. Thank you very much. One of the things that, you know, you can't escape when you look at the headlines today is, I mean, everything is about jobs and the economy. And what I'd love for you to talk about is what it could mean to our economy if businesses were able to suck down electricity and energy from the grid like, you know, drunken sailors and not worry about having harmful impact to the environment, not worried about cost. I mean, if we really could achieve a situation where we could provide ample, clean, renewable energy that was cheap, what could that mean to the American economy? Well, when you go to, when you begin business analysis, and you say, here's a little company, and, and they've got a great product that could be brought forward, and there could be a demand for it in society, and there's enough room that you can fabricate it, and then you could sell it for a reasonable price. I mean, this is a beautiful scenario, but when you start looking at, when, when you take the raw figures, the raw numbers, and you begin to put 
the energy costs associated with fabricating the product in there, which is one of those things that the photovoltaic companies, they don't like to do too much. The cost per panel is something they want to quote, and very seldom, and it's, it's part, in part because the plastic panels or the, the cylindra-type modality for photovoltaics just requires taking a roll of plastic and printing a, a photosensitive dye on it. So mm-hmm. it's not nearly as expensive a process as uh, fabricating and, and deploying the crystalline silicon, which is what was done 40 years ago for mm-hmm. photovoltaic collection. But it turns out that in the impact on the bottom line of the company or the potential to actually make a profit after selling the things, when you look at the market pressures and the downturns of economies and so forth, the energy required to fabricate a product and even the energy required to box it up and ship it, this is a significant fraction of the selling price. Now, if you could imagine having limitless energy or having a situation where you could almost neglect that term in the final, in the particular calculations of margins for your business, this would be a beautiful scenario. Mm-hmm. But it's not a scenario that we're going to achieve. You know, the world has, is is gluttonous with respect to energy. Mm-hmm. And if you remember the um, Inter- International Energy Agency, that French consultancy, they reported their figures last fall, and they pointed out that the world is going to have a $20 billion per day energy habit by 2035. Whoa. $20 billion. Now, that $20 billion comes directly off the bottom line. You know, that's one of those numbers that it's not something that you can shrink and not something that you change with scale and all of the, the business tricks and all of the things that you do when you look, look forward for the profitability of a company. Mm-hmm. That is right off the bottom line of the world's production and manufacturing every day. And that's an incredibly big number. It is. And so that is a number that tends to hobble. That hobbles productivity. It hobbles the, the capability of businesses to bring forward meaningful products or products that would be sought by society uh, in, um, unless they're right in the sweet spot, you know, unless society is clamoring for this product and they're willing to pay maybe too much for it even. Well, something renewable energy, it's very easy to say, hey, why should I pay an extra dime per kilowatt for my energy when coal, you know, we've got enough coal to run the country for 200 years resident here in, our, in, in uh, the continental United States. Why in the world would I want to pay more for energy for my home or my business for, uh, to have something that's renewable or something that's a little bit more environmentally friendly? Mm-hmm. So this is, this is a pretty big battle. And if we could figure out or if we could dedicate ourselves to having cleaner and cheaper electricity and energy available to business and manufacturing, there are a host of products that could come forward or that they could bring forward that would be available at cheaper prices. And in the United States, we could be more globally competitive, mm-hmm. which right now our pricing structure is not as competitive as those of Asian countries, for example. Mm-hmm. Besides energy production, Dr. Gamble, does your investment firm also analyze technology that would increase the efficiency of the transmission and distribution systems that we currently have? Um, I know that, you know, between the source generation of a lot of energy plants and where it actually meets with the consumer, um, a lot of efficiency is lost. A lot of um, energy is lost in that in that transmission and distribution. Are you looking at technologies that would increase the efficiency so that maybe 
you know, even if we stayed fairly static in terms of how much energy we produce, we'd get more energy out of that energy production because we'd be more efficient in the distribution? Yeah, you're exactly right. And this goes, once again, this goes straight to the bottom line. It's part of the cost of delivering these things and so forth. And the transmission of energy from one of the beautiful things about solar is that you can have a facility, at least out here in the sunny southwest or in the sun belt, the entire sun belt out here, you could you could site solar facilities closer to where the energy is actually used, and you wouldn't suffer so much in the way of transmission loss. Mm-hmm. But I have to confess that at Fidelis, we, we would love nothing better than to, to have somebody come to us or to, or to have one of our associates ferret out a company that had a terrific transmission or storage idea. But it's like we, we chatted about earlier. Energy storage is, is really lagging in the technology. If, I'll tell you what, Jill. If energy storage could um, it flash memory, if the equivalent of flash memory, what, what the flash concept has done to revolutionize and miniaturize electronics and to boost mm-hmm. the, the, the uh, capability of low-cost information storage, if we could come up with an energy storage or energy transmission uh, equivalent, it would revolutionize. That might be the first trillion-dollar company that the world sees. Well, and that that's critical? the it is, and and it's the problem is it's just not sexy enough. I mean, n- nobody sees headlines about the critical nature of of bringing energy storage online. We see, you know, both positive and negative stories about various renewable energy production technology, yeah. but there's no ink being devoted to energy storage in the same at the same level, and it's a pity. No, I think you're right. And at the Los Alamos National Laboratory, I was delighted to see, you know, the place is, it's basically a nuclear weapons laboratory and since its inception, except during the uh, energy crisis in the mid-70s, I think that was the only time that the laboratory's focus and its funding approached um, a parity between weapons design and weapons certification and so on and uh, other uh, research undertakings, but during that period of time, they began to research battery and energy storage technology, and I was delighted to see them going forward with that, but unfortunately, uh, I'm afraid that they didn't do any better than any of the other labs or universities or, or whatever around in the country or globally. It's just a really tough nut to crack. Mm-hmm. Well, clearly, I mean, you know, if it's one of those situations where there's so much potential in it, um, but you know, even with the battery technology um, that we've seen, I mean, there's a lot of advances being made. But even when it comes to batteries that power electric vehicles, I mean, we've we're far from nirvana when it comes to you know the batteries that we're dealing with, even in that application. Yeah, but, I'd hate um, to know that I had to charge my vehicle every night without fail so that I could be sure to get to uh, an appointment or to my office in the morning. I know, and I mean, you know, as a as a minivan mom myself, um, <laughs> a soccer mom, Jill, are you a soccer mom? I am. I'm a soccer mom, a hockey mom, a band mom, a track mom. I, I could go on and on. I've got three kids, and they're all very involved. Oh, you multifaceted. Know, but, 
Yes, exactly. It's an exciting life. But so far, you know, the electric vehicle um, industry hasn't hit the sweet spot with with consumers like myself and the needs that we have for our vehicles. Right. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we've got more with Dr. Michael Gamble, so don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We're joined today by Dr. Michael Gamble. Um, he's the author of a brand new book. It's a fiction book, um, but it is for anybody who loves a sci-fi kind of action thriller. Uh, one part twenty-four. If you were into that Fox series, and and another part, uh, I don't know. What would you say, Dr. Gamble? I mean, it's it's got that science uh, element as well. Uh, it's it's a real thriller, and I loved reading it. But uh, tell us just a little bit more about the book. We gave a teaser in the last segment. Give us a little bit more uh, juice here for our, our listeners who might want to pick up the book soon. Well, thank you very much, Jill. I'm so delighted that you found time to crack the covers and that, in fact, you're enjoying it. Very much. It was, uh, you know, during the, the, the uh, development of the publicity campaign for the book, various taglines were considered, and uh, one, that seemed to, one that seemed to resonate was that Xeroscape is the firm meets the lab. Ooh, I like it. Yes, that's that's perfect. That's yeah. perfect. <laughs> yeah, well, it's hard. I think everybody pretty much has the vision of the clean-cut kid who's maybe uh, too smart by half for his own good. Shows up <laughs> and he's uh, he's going to change this town or he's going to make a big impact at this place, but he really doesn't understand the ball game. He's playing checkers while the people running the show are playing chess. Right. Right. It's it's a great book. Uh, the setting is Los Alamos National Lab. And, you know, as somebody who used to work there, you've included a lot of details of the inner workings and politics of the lab. And uh, and, and that makes it all the more thrilling because it, it's coming from the perspective of somebody know, who knows exactly how the lab works. I love that part. Well, Jill, it's amazing how much pressure can be brought to bear uh, 
along the way uh, on an author pressure on an author brought to bear along the way by those who who want to diminish uh, the complexity of a book or a plot or the thing that people won't be interested in the detail workings or uh, a look behind the the curtain the opaque curtain of a weapons laboratory because they're too interested in barky dialogue and so forth but you know to those people all along i just had to say that i believe there's a large fraction of people who would be interested to understand especially given the press that los alamos national laboratory has gotten in the last twenty years with with a spy story the winho lee situation i mean was the first to come to mind and people are interested to know well how do they go about safeguarding the information there and how in the world can you conduct an experiment with hundreds or thousands of contributors that is kept secret. Mm-hmm. And you get, indeed, you get a look behind that opaque curtain in Xeroscape. Exactly how the um, compartmentalization of information is executed and exactly how it can be thwarted in the mm-hmm. worst case is what I wanted to portray in the book. Well, and you did a great job of it because the multi layers of security that, you know, are put in and the, and the way that, that uh, information is compartmentalized. It's so complex, um, and and I found it just so interesting to see how that kind of thing works with your book. I mean, were you hoping that the audience would would merely be entertained, or was there a deeper message that you were trying to convey to your audience? Jill, I, I have to confess that Zeroscape was a labor of love for me as a person. <laughs> this was five years of writing and and going back, and there are there are elements in there because I did work in the um, um, photonics division and work on terawatt laser systems and aggressive, the so-called Star Wars program, where we had uh, photonic weaponry, we were designing photonic weaponry. That was very natural to me. But some of the inter- inner workings of the security apparatus and so forth at the laboratory was not something that I had come up against in my experience. So I spent time researching that and developing a scenario where that where I could express a cautionary tale to the management of the lab and to the government, as far as that goes, for what must not be allowed to happen at, mm-hmm. at an installation of security significance in the United States. Mm-hmm. And that is the FBI and the CIA. You know, the, the turf wars they fight and the pettiness that they demonstrate between one another from time to time, that is completely unacceptable when America's nuclear security, for example, is at stake. Mm-hmm. And Zeroscape shows the the uh, hideous or the um, the hideous and horrible outcome of having the CIA, the FBI, and laboratory senior management all playing their cards too close to their vests, so that the criminal element is able to uh, gain a foothold. And in fact, uh, as the mastermind says, to make Los Alamos an apple that's rotten at the core, but hardly tarnished on the surface. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, it's it's really amazing what you what you kind of lead the reader through in terms of how this security works. And speaking of security, you know, we're talking we've been talking about alternative energy, energy storage, and all kinds of components of our energy system. But one of the things that we've been hearing about lately is the vulnerability of our grid to cyber attacks. How concerned are you about the cybersecurity or uh, even just the physical security of our energy system in America? Well, I'm concerned about that. And as a matter of fact, 
if, uh, you know, today, I believe the New York Times re- reported today about the hackers that hacked into the Department of Justice computer work. Yes. As, uh, this is in retaliation to the, these case, or I guess there are allegations, and it's not yet a case, but the allegations and having shut down Mega Upload, you yeah. know, the Hong Kongese, um, company that was responsible for, or they claim was responsible for a great deal of piracy and, uh, money laundering and this kind of thing, internet, uh, uh, unlawful activity on the internet. So when you look at that, and then you look at a facility like Iran's, I mean, this, you know, there, it may be reason to cheer, but when you look at the fact that the facility is secretive and one that certainly must be maintained with, with the highest security ethos, and that would be those centrifuges in Iran, mm-hmm. how you could go into them and reprogram, reprogram them electronically so that they spin themselves out of control, so that they damage themselves. You know, the, the Stuxnet, I'm referring, of course, to Stuxnet from uh-huh. two years ago. I right. mean, this is truly, this is like 21st century sci-fi at its best, but it really happened. And mm-hmm. so the vulnerability of systems connected to the web is something that uh, I don't think the government, or I don't think even private enterprise because of uh, business espionage and whatever, I don't think that you can be vigilant enough against those threats. Well, and you bring up a very interesting point between the responsibility and concerns of the private sector versus the public sector. Um, when it comes to the security of our grid, I mean, you've got a lot of energy producers and uh, buyers and sellers, you know, on the on the market, um, and it doesn't seem as though many of them feel that they have a, a great responsibility for security. Is that a governmental function? Is it a private sector function, or uh, is it kind of a hybrid responsibility of both? Jill, that is a great question. You know, I'm going to have to get my Birkenstocks off and go plunge my feet into the nearest toilet. I need the Steve Jobs edge here. You know, I've been doing that since I read the Jobs biography, but but it hasn't made me any smarter, unfortunately. <laughs> so, you know, this is this is something that is so complex and so challenging, especially having already, uh, oh, what can I say? Having already exposed myself as a free market thinker very early in the show, it's very difficult for me to say that that the government should come in and tell Westinghouse or General Electric. I'm sure that Rocketdyne and Boeing and uh, Rockwell International and these companies, they are at least as fixated on security as the Defense Department. Mm-hmm. So I, I think they're covered and they're doing as well as anyone poss- or any corporate entity possibly could in the modern world. But whether they need to come to Shell Oil or, or whether they need to go to an arbitrary private enterprise and say, well, we don't think that you're securing your data or securing your infrastructure well enough against cyber attack, and we want to put a burden on you, or we're going to do it for you and charge you um, some tax for, for undertaking your security, you know, that doesn't sit well with me. But no, at the same time, I recognize that um, the, the government does have some then again, also, should the government come in and provide the service for free? Should the government come into IBM and say, well, we, we've got a great way to, to um, securitize your systems and your data and your manufacturing, and we're going to do that because this is part of what the government should do in a good society? You know, that, that's a diff- difficult one to uh, parse out also. So mm-hmm. I think you have a terrific question there, and, and geez, I'd, you know, I, I may need a little bit more time in the jobs mode, before I could come up with a good answer for that. 
Well, and it's something that, that, you know, I think that we'll continue to explore. I mean, I don't think anybody has the silver bullet on that one. Unfortunately, we've reached the end of our time with you, Dr. Gamble. We're oh, just going to no. have to have you back on sometime soon. But thank you so much for joining us on Go Green Radio, and thanks to our listeners for being with us as well. Have a great week, everybody, and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.